It was an impossible situation. I was alone, alone in an office, scared, sick at hearts, and overwhelmed, and yet, I had to record a podcast. It's your weekly podcast where Brent and I talk about the Animorph books. This book is the second part of the Andalite Chronicles. Trapped on the Texan homeworld, Elfangor manages to reconnect with Arbron, only to discover that his fellow trainee has become stuck in Taxan Morph. They manage to take back the Skritna ship with the Time Matrix on board, only to crash it quickly and become separated. Elfangor finds a br- bunch of Earth goods, including a Mustang car and some Dr. Pepper, which he drives till he finds the rebellious mountain Taxans ruled by the Living Hive. Aron has found his place among the rebels and leads a charge on the main city, with Alfangor following. Alfangor manages to find the two humans, Aloran and Horkbegir Espelin, and Aloran's PT cruiser, and escape the city. Aloran and Alfangor quarrel about killing the Yerks on board, and Aloran is knocked out by Chapman. But it was a trap. Chapman had already been controlled by Espelin, who managed to take control of Aloran's body while he was unconscious. Instead of killing him, they release Aloran in the Taxan Desert, and Lauren and Alfangor escape into space. They track down the Andalite's VW bus, but find it engaged with some living meteorites that are devouring the ship's hull. It ends in a cliffhanger. When it was published on its own, this book was called Aloran's Choice. And I assume that's referring to his choice to continue to be mad and so goddamn crazy. Yeah, and like genocidal. Yeah, because he seems to, once again, still be blaming the Andalites that didn't want to genocide the hork for the fact that his quantum virus that, I remind you, did actually end up getting released. <laughs> didn't, like, work, and the Yerks took the planet, so. Yeah, Aloran has some issues. Uh, and we'll probably never get a good conclusion on them since he is now controlled by Espelin, who we know as Visor 3. You don't think probably that we'll get some closure on Aloran's issues in Visor? I mean, maybe. I'm hoping... I, you know what, more than anything, Brent, I want... I just want somebody to kill him. Because he keeps... They keep having opportunities, and they keep letting those opportunities slip. And I appreciate that it's Visor 3, and he has to survive this book because he's in the modern timeline, and that's important for continuity and stuff, but it's getting frustrating. I mean, I I guess if they killed him here, they could do like an Age of Apocalypse type scenario where the whole future timeline fucks up and the books that you've read so far are rebooted with gritty 90s versions of the Animorphs. Brent, I can't read 30 more books that are just rehashes of the first... I mean, you did that with the first couple books in those reboots, but I don't have it in me. I just don't. Not even if the Elemist leads the Animorphs this time? Mm, especially not if the Elemist leaves the Animorphs this time. But he has a ponytail and two braids. <laughs> what are you referencing? Which X-Men is this? Age of Apocalypse. It was right after Legion Quest. It was. In, I just got done reading this, so... Uh, okay. Magneto leads the X-Men. Charles Xavier gets murdered in the past by his time-traveling son by accident. 
Jesus. Uh, and that allows Apocalypse to take over the world, but then Magneto's leading the X-Men, because Charles Xavier dying in front of him, like, messed him up pretty bad, so he was dedicated to carrying on Xavier's dream, but he didn't do it very well. And everybody's all dark, and Cyclops is evil, and actually only has one eye, and Whoa. Wolverine's missing a hand, and the whole world is just a, a fucking cesspit ruled by Apocalypse. It's wild. Brent, I feel like we could transition this podcast into an X-Men podcast with pretty relative ease. Don't fucking tempt me, Jenna. Do not fucking <laughs> tempt me because I've got Comixology Unlimited. It, oh, it, nice. It doesn't even cost me that much to get in on some classic X-Men. <laughs> well, we'll put it on the shelf that's currently just full of other podcast options. Let me just sidebar for like a half second here. Yeah. And say that I love that you referred to the Jahar as Aloran's PT Cruiser because it is his fucking dad car that <laughs> that he thinks is a souped up hot rod. Yeah, that Elfangor is young enough to be like, whoa, this is a cool ride. <laughs> Sweet ride, dad. <laughs> it is worth mentioning that he does find an actual Mustang and Elfangor does drive the Mustang kind of. It's so hard for me to picture that, Brent. You've, you've never pictured a horse driving a convertible? Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. When you put it like that, I really don't know why I've been wasting my imagination by not imagining that. Well, I mean, so here's what I think really clenches the, the canon, the more canon than canon version of Andalites with no torsos. Yeah. Because the way they describe him driving the Mustang, he cuts yeah. out the seats so that he can stand there, uh, and he uses one hoof on the pedals. So if you had a torso... It would be very hard for him, and, and the reason my, the sound of my voice just changed is because I'm reaching out and, and trying to move my arms. <laughs> it would be very difficult for him to reach the steering wheel, but if they're just coming out the base of his neck there, he's got it. Yeah, yeah, that's I can, a great point. Yeah, I can very easily imagine it working that way. Yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that he has a little pan full of some Dr. Pepper. This is can this is actual book canon. This is not a joke we are making. He's got a little pan full of Dr. Pepper that he's just stepping in with his hoof to drink it on as he's driving. You know Alan Fangor needs that Pepper MD. He is not <sighs> a Mr. Pib or Pib Extreme sort of man. He's not no, gonna he's a deal name brand man. with your Dr. Thunder. It's gotta be the pepper. I just really appreciated that detail. I hope K.A. Applegate loves Dr. Pepper, and that's why it's in there. I mean, even if she just thought it would be a funny little detail, I'm glad she threw it in. Me too. God, where to start? I mean, we've already started. Where to continue, Brent? <laughs> so uh, there's a part in this at the beginning. Elfangor seems in this book, I think, despite having like just met Lauren in the last one, to really be falling hard for her. Oh, yeah very hard he's definitely like entranced by her and he like really really wants to save her more than anyone which i appreciate i mean because the only other people he has to save are chapman which no no thank you which honestly i think feeds into that fan theory that we got the email about uh, a few episodes ago that andalites are just ha have a natural predilection to mating with other races instead of andalites yeah which is interesting and i I kind of like that as a justification for wanting to bone down. <laughs> I, I mean, it makes total sense to me. Like, because there's a part, I think, in the first book where Lauren, like, like tosses her beautiful blonde hair aside over her shoulder. And Elfangor is like, wow, that was pretty. That was pretty. Girl, pretty. 
Uh, I really liked that moment. It, it just seems like there's some sort of instinctive attraction to other species that the Andalites have and are, are willing to explore, which I appreciate. I mean, I, I think it comes from, you know, if they look at uh, an Andalite woman, they're just so disgusted by the, the tiny flaccid tail blade. <laughs> oh, God. They just can't even yeah. bring themselves to look at it. Yeah, they must be mesmerized by humans' full torsos. Like the fact that we have like <laughs> torsos shit. and they must be like, that must be so interesting oh, to them. Oh God, I hadn't even thought about it, but that's amazing. That's gotta be, yeah, because I'll think, okay, because I'm just picturing a human person standing next to the canon torso-less Andalite and they're... The Andalite's head must be kind of kind of low. I mean, it's good that they have eye stalks that they can still maintain eye contact, but this is a good image. I'm holding <laughs> on to this one. <laughs> we have got some great fucking fan art. <laughs> Just by the by. <laughs> yes, we have updated AndaliteTruth.org. It's, it's, yeah, oh, it's not a commercial okay. enterprise. It is, it is an organization dedicated to revealing the truth <laughs> about Andalite canon that you have been lied to about. It's very, very good. Let's, oh, let's talk about or- Arbron. Oh, God. He has the most unpleasant nothling. Uh, just, I had to, like, stop reading the book because the, the description f- throughout the first book and in this book of what it's like to be a taxon is just so viscerally unpleasant. Sorry, viscerally, not viscerally. <laughs> viscerally unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, subviscerally. <laughs> it's just the description of them being overpowered by hunger and like the auto cannibalism that comes with being in that morph it's just so horrible and then arbron gets stuck and just having to like sit and think about spending the rest of your life because 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 the nothlets that we have i mean being stuck as a rat is pretty fucking miserable but i think being stuck as a taxon is a whole other level of awful I would much rather be stuck as a red-tailed hawk like Tobias Fangorn, I'll tell you that for sure. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I mean, I, I did have to set the book down for a second when Arbron <sighs> uh, was missing a couple legs and begging Elfangor to kill him. Yeah, because probably he was probably really wanting to eat his own legs. You know what they do. You know what happens to injured taxons, he says. <laughs> <laughs> they shoot taxons, don't they? <laughs> Aww. Yeah, so just, yeah, that was so visceral. Sorry, I can't, I have to stop using that word. I just can't. It's just so engaging and descriptive and horrifying. I think it's the most horrified I've ever been reading these books. And that's saying something. You know, I think it's really interesting that it's revealed in this book that taxons can grow back legs that have been amputated. Yeah, because that's also crazy because they, I mean, taxons seem pretty delicate. Like, it seems like it does not take very much to pop them open. Yeah, they're like bags of soup. (laughs) Yes, that's a better metaphor. The only metaphor I could think of off the cuff was a condom full of blood. I'm sorry. No, that's good. No, that's uh, actually the correct shape. I was thinking (laughs) soup dumplings, but yeah. (laughs) Oh, I like soup dumplings. I don't like that comparison. (laughs) I don't like condoms full of blood. So that's a better comparison for me. (laughs) Does anybody accept special effects artists who are attaching them to squibs? (laughs) 
Probably not. It just seems like the Texans are so delicate. It takes so little to harm them. And that made sense because if it takes so little to eviscerate, that's sorry, that's eviscerate, not eviscerate. Jesus Christ. Takes- <laughs> Jenna, we, we, we just have to accept at some point that this is our accent now and stop with the corrections or this will be an hour long episode. It just takes so little to eviscerate the taxons that it makes sense if if they're delicate and they're easy re- easy to replace and you need a food source that you would just eat an injured taxon. But the fact that they can regenerate makes that extra horrifying. Yeah, yeah, because if you didn't immediately eat them, like, Bob will grow his legs back. Yeah, he'll be fine. But, you know, I'm hungry now. Yeah, yeah, and I can't control my hunger. What's Bob done for me lately? Ugh... So that was an extra layer of horror. Let's also talk about the living hive, Brent. Oh, man. Okay. And this is, I guess, sort of a callback to our X-Men chat earlier. But I mentioned (laughs) before the show that while I was reading this, I kept thinking uh, that, like, Jack Kirby named some of the shit in this book (laughs) instead of Kay Applegate, because, like, the living hive definitely sounds like something from his sixth world saga. Also, the time matrix. I mean, these are real... (laughs) I I don't know the exact word, but I'm going to say Kirby-esque. I think that's fair. It's very much like this is what the thing is, so I'm going to name it what the thing is. Even though we know K.A.'s method is, here's a word that reminds me of it. I'm going to say it a bunch of times until it's a a different alien word. Thanks, Animorphs. Flash number one. (laughs) I'll call back to something I mentioned before we started recording, which is that the Living Hive reminded me a lot of a Junji Ito story. Because we definitely saw that last time where the the taxons, like, have holes in the side of a mountain that they crawl in and out of. But here's this, like, pulsing mountain of taxon flesh. So the living hive specifically reminded you of the enigma of Amagata Fault? Well, the hives in the first book did, because they were just literally holes in the mountain that the taxon crawled in and out of. Maybe more like kind of an anthill. But the... That already put me in mind of Junji Ito, because I'm always low-key thinking about Junji Ito anyway. Hell, same. So this one, the fact that it's that, but also it's like alive and gelatinous and has weird pulsing tunnels that it uses to uh, shoot into the earth and create portals into other areas, that all felt very gross and Junji Ito-esque. My mind went to Geiger first. I can kind of see that. Was... The living hive in your mind, a weird sexual metaphor? Yes, the living hive in my mind Mm. looked uh, a lot like a Geiger painting, and the tunnels were extremely biomechanical in the Geiger alien dick shape sense. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I can, I can, I'm overlaying that concept on top of my image, and I think it works. I was imagining something that was more aggressively biological and less biomechanical but i think it i think that works i uh i just really want a junji ito hr geiger collaboration now one of those dudes is dead i'm pretty sure as if that would stop him (laughs) fuck (laughs) not not even death could stop hr geiger that's fine geiger (laughs) or geiger i think it's geiger i've literally never heard anybody say it out loud i only know it from reading it so uh I'm going to take your word for it. Fair enough. I've been nailing my pronunciations this episode, so you can totally trust me. Fucking Twitter fans, don't at me about this, I swear to God. 
So, uh, I I mean, I kind of like that Arbron like found his place with the Mountain Rebel Taxons. The the turnaround on that seemed really quick to me because they like literally crash their spaceship and then like Elfangor wakes up, wanders around the Skritna ship, finds a Mustang, and then beats it. <laughs> it just seems like a really quick turnaround. No, no. He does take some time to read magazines about humans mm-hmm. in nature putting small white cylinders into their mouths and smiling. <laughs> yeah, yes, he learns about Yosemite, which I thought was very delightful. He learns about Yosemite and also the the smooth, enticing flavor of Chesterfield <laughs> Kings. <laughs> yeah, I liked that he saw the park and the people smoking in the park in Yosemite and was like, I want to go there with Lauren. It's like, oh, dog, you got it bad, huh? You got it bad? <laughs> he doesn't even have a mouth to put that small white cylinder into. What does he think oh. he's going to, like, like put it under his hoof and just sort of stand on it gently? <laughs> I was imagining one of them sticking out of his little nostril slits. Oh. But you don't, you don't get the flavor that way. And that's one really of, what you're smoking for. One of those Caribbean native nose pipes that they smoked tobacco mm. out of. Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, although I really like the idea of him... Like one hoof in a a pan of whiskey, and then another hoof sitting on a smoking c- cigarette. <laughs> I feel like it would probably be more effective for him to have one hoof in a a like little container of Kodiak or something. <laughs> it's sized just for that too to bring it back to Junji Ito. Really horrible. Yeah, that was a a really fitting callback, but just unpleasant to think about. Um. <laughs> he he gets real into Charlie Daniels. <laughs> oh God! Like a Billy Ray Cyrus cowboy hat with holes for his stock eyes. Oh, it's all smashed up like that, though. Fucking good look. Ben. Oh God! That's I want to really see it. Good look. Oh. I'm imagining he's got a red bandana, but it's tied around his tail. It's good. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, speaking of Arbron, how does any Andalite get stuck in a morph? Because they have perfect internal clocks. How do you get put in a situation where that is your only option is becoming a Taxon? Because it seems like it would be worth it to risk going back into Andalite form, no matter what. I mean, like if you're unconscious. Mm. If you were That's knocked unconscious, point. then you wouldn't be able to demorph. And we've seen that almost happen to a couple of the Animorphs before, so... Yeah, I'm thinking of Angel, uh, Rachel braining herself on a tree as an eagle. The other thing, I guess, is just maybe thinking that you can make it a little later than you oh. actually can. Which, once again, we've seen almost bite our Animorphs as well. I can see that more for Arbron, because it... I'm trying to imagine a taxon getting knocked unconscious without getting immediately devoured, and that doesn't really match my knowledge of their physiology. Yeah, they are kind of described as like living aspects, like poke them and they'll fall apart. Yeah, they're just goo beasts. Like they, I don't think, I don't think they can take concussive damage. <laughs> their little organs suspended in jello. <laughs> So I think, yeah, you might be right. He might have been trying to push it and just found that he pushed it too long. That seems like the likeliest option. I mean, the Animorphs do that repeatedly, so... Yeah, Marco as a flea, almost. Yeah. As a giant All of them as wolves, almost. Yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. 
to jump back for a second to uh, something you were saying earlier, I 100% buy that turnaround time for Arbron hooking up with the Living Hive because his alternative is horror, just straight eating horror. When he's trapped as a taxon, he thinks this is it for me. All I have is the hunger. And the hmm. like he fed when he was a taxon. He and Aloran fed. He admits it to Elfangor. And then he hooks up the Living Hive and finds out, oh, oh, actually, I can be useful and not be like a cannibalistic monster who's just exiled on this planet. He he goes from thinking his life is over to thinking, well, my life is over, but at least I have something to do with it until I die. That's true, because the, the mountain taxon are unique from the rest because they do still feel the pulsing hunger, but they seem to be able to control it a little bit better. I think it's implied that the living hive uh, has some amount of influence on whether or not they give into that. Yeah, it seems to be able to repress it, or or at least it doesn't seem to be overwhelming the mountain taxons to the point where they will betray their entire race to get a little bit more meat. Well, they managed to drag uh, Arbrin missing a couple legs back to the Living Hive without eating him, so that's already one better than any of the Yurkost taxons. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So I wanted to talk about, like, the mechanics of the Living Hive. What do you think the relationship is between that and the taxons? That's a great question. The, in the first book, as we mentioned, there is a sort of regular mountain hive that's not living that they seem to make use of as like housing. So I'm wondering if maybe the living hive is a progenitor, like that's where they all come from and then they leave it or I, I don't know. I think it's a good question. I mean, it could be a symbiotic species like uh, that living planet from D.C., and then the taxons sort of burrowed into it, and then they symbi- symbioseized? Is there- can you verb that? Ah, uh, I don't think anyone's gonna stop us. Twitter- Twitter S- might. Symbiize? They're, they're very upset about our reading order already. I- <laughs> Yeah, and that's fair, we did- we are fucking it up a little. We're making amends now. Twitter, it is within your power. Wikipedia is the free encyclopedia that anybody can edit. You just go and change stuff around in that chronological order, bud. Hmm. That's right. We should have done that and then linked back to it. Should have covered our asses. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, so I think my impression of the Living Hive description is that it's sort of the same gelatinous material as the taxon, which uh-huh. makes me think it's less symbiotic and more more some sort of maybe the taxon are like baby versions of the Living Hive and the three that managed to make it to a certain age become new Living Hives. That would be really cool. Yeah, I think that's a uh, canon. It's like a pack protector type situation to bring Larry Niven into it a fucking again. <laughs> um, so when I was reading it, I kind of thought of the Living Hive as uh, the the Oods um, from Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. The Ood they uh, they had that shared consciousness mind that was being locked down. I don't know if you saw that season. Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and so it was like they were all individuals, but they also had sort of like almost an Akashic record type Hmm. situation where there was an overriding consciousness that they could all access at the same time. I I like the idea of that. I like the idea that the living hive might be a sort of group consciousness, and if you're the Yerks, you just go in and destroy of the living hive for the area you're at and then make the taxons a better offer and they they lack the group consciousness slash willpower to resist it also sort of makes sense that 
even if you haven't destroyed the living hive for an area, assuming that there were more than one, and I like the idea that there were a lot of them on this planet, which I, I think that's got to be canon. Even if you didn't destroy the living hive, there's got to be enough that even with access to the shared consciousness are just big assholes who want to eat stuff. And the yurts are like, we'll provide you with exotic meats. <laughs> and they're like, sure, all right, let's do that. Living hive, fuck off. Yeah, I think that's pretty possible. It's probably pretty boring to eat taxon all the time. I'm, I'm really gonna throw out there, I think the taxons are by far the most alien species that we have been exposed to so far in the books. I agree. And I think part of that is because they have an almost termite-like consciousness. So even when we... It's not like the Horkbegir where you get a, a sort of internal, very personal peek at them. We don't have any like named taxon that we can look at and say, okay, here's an individual taxon. They're all sort of, maybe not hive mind, but so similar and single-minded that we don't really have an individual taxon. We probably never will have an individual taxon other than the living hive. Uh, we have Arbron, which by the way, Kay Applegate, who was forward thinking enough to leave his status in terms of dead or alive ambiguous, <laughs> can use Arbron as a POV character if a like born taxon is just too alien to write well. K.A. Yeah. Write the Taxon Chronicles. Oh my <laughs> god, please write the Taxon Chronicles. That would be very good. Oh, if a if a Yurk okay, if a Yurk gets their host killed or maimed, do the do you think they get a new one? Like if you fuck up the one that you're in, are they gonna give you another one or does it depend on like your ranking? We still haven't managed to figure out if a host dying kills the Yurk. Yeah, that's a good point. Because Visser 3, once he's Visser 3, kills a lot of hosts, and so do the Andalites, to be mm. fair. But the only time we ever really see a Yurk exiting that I can remember um, is like shortly before death. Like when Visser 3's been bit and uh, Alaran, his Alaran host is poisoned. Or on the talk show, uh, once they're maimed real good, um, and then you see them, like, slithering out. But we never really see what happens to all of the ones that the Animorphs kill. You'd think that there would just be a bunch of Yurks floating around on the dirt. My personal theory uh, is that the rush of chemicals when a, a human being is killed overwhelms the, the Yurk, and they, they're, they're not prepared to absorb that. I, I like that theory a lot, because... From my vantage point, it seems like there would be no repercussions other than you're in a dead body, so you can't move it anymore. But I like I like the idea that there is something intrinsic about the death that makes it makes experiencing it, whether physiologically or emotionally, just too much to handle. I mean, otherwise, Visser Three killing his minions that fuck up is basically just your boss coming around and like squirting mustard on your shirt every time that you mess up because like dick move you can't use that shirt again it's ruined now but like you can get another or or maybe maybe like knocking their computer over so it breaks because you still have to get a new fucking computer before you get work done ah that's true and your company does have to issue it to you so that's kind of similar to the yurk hierarchy oh shit i just had some uncomfortable realizations about <laughs> corporate culture hey so when Elfinger is in this Kritna ship and he finds books, he describes them like someone who doesn't know what books are. 
like a, a bunch of stacks of paper bound on one side. And that's weird because I very distinctly remember, and I, I cannot, I could not tell you which book this was in or which episode we talked about it in, but I know we commented on it. I remember Axe talking about how like how much better books are than computers because books rule. And I remember us talking about how adorable it is that K.A. sort of slipped that in there. Yes, I still very much like that. So, like, what gives, Elfangor? Yeah, how does Elfangor not know books, but Axe does? Wait a minute, Axe is related to Elfangor, so maybe Elfangor learned about books and then brought that information back once he returns, because he definitely returns? Or maybe Elfangor's a jock? (laughs) who's like on the lacrosse team and crushing beer andalite beer cans on his forehead and doesn't know what books are i'm flashing flashing back to gaston in beauty and the beast holding up the book sideways like he doesn't know what it is well so i i will put this forward remember in the last book of the andalite chronicles everybody sort of clowned on arbron for being good at computers yeah yeah axe has been consistently good at computers for the entire animorph series Oh, that's true. Axe is a little nerdling. Yeah, and we love him. Well, I like that a lot. And and don't get me wrong, Elfangor's a stand-up guy. He really sticks to his principles uh, in an almost comic bookian fashion. <laughs> he really doesn't commit genocide. I'll say that for the guy. Yes, he very much does not commit war crimes. He just, I think, it it turns out, unless you are interested in nerdy shit on the Andalite homeworld, you're just not exposed to it. I like that. I like that maybe uh, Elfangor brings back knowledge of this technology, and the rest of the Andalites are like, uh, yeah, Elfangor, it's called a book? (laughs) (laughs) You fucking idiot. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) That would be so great. Oh. Oh my god. God damn, Elfangor. There's like a library right over there. Have you never been to it? How did you get free personal pan pizzas as a kid? (laughs) Have we talked about that on the show too? I don't think so, no. I know our our non-US based listeners may not be familiar with that particular reference. Oh, it's so good, though. You, it was the reading summer reading program where if you read a certain number of books, you got stickers. And for so many stickers, you got a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. In my town, we were actually able to use them at Pizza Man. Oh, I don't even know Pizza Man. It, it was a local restaurant. They sort of they, they replaced the Pizza Hut when the Pizza Hut moved out. I like that. I like that they just painted over Hut and made it man. Yeah, it was better, like a lot better. I've got a question for you, Brent. Shoot. Let me walk you through this. Okay. So the Andalites have a spaceship. Yeah. Uh-huh. Call, called the Star Sword. <laughs> Which, okay. Seems like another Jack Kirby type situation. Just throwing that out there. That's very much a, a comic book ship name. Kind of a weird name. Um, do the Andalites have swords? And if so, why? Yes. And... They are prosthetics for Andalites who have had their tails amputated <laughs> by misadventure or disease. I really, really like that, Brent. That was such a good answer. I don't even know what to do. Right, they're not That's like swords good. that you hold, though. They call them swords, but they're actually strapped to your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I've used swords like that, haven't you? <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I, I don't... 
You know Bad Dragon doesn't sell swords, right? <laughs> Why are they always piercing stuff then? That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I just the like the idea. I, I was just picturing, again, our canon torso-less Andalite wielding a sword. <laughs> all, all squat and reaching out with its, with its arm, its neck arms. No, nah, that's why they strap it to their ass. Or what if they had accessories that you attach to your tail to make it like double, like double sword? Like the spurs that they put on roosters when they cockfight them? Uh, uh, yeah, but voluntary. Right, right. No, I, I didn't mean. <laughs> I didn't mean to compare <laughs> Andalite tail fighting to cockfighting. It's, if anything, <laughs> more like uh, bomb fights, I guess, since it's not boxing. Those are deadly. Uh, uh. Some sort of Mortal Kombat. It's it's yes, okay. it's a Mortal Kombat type situation, <laughs> not cockfighting. But but that's what I yes, that's what I yes. mean. Is but yeah, that's it, exactly what that I'm type thinking, of yeah. that type of accessory. I guess a, a katar, a punching dagger like that, but for a tail. Maybe yeah. strap a thing that shoots bullets onto their tail. Some sort of gun that shoots smaller tail blades. Good. All right. I'm glad we investigated that question together. <laughs> So there's there's a point towards the end of this before the Jahar getting eaten by a living asteroid uh, and the cliffhanger while, where Elfengor is ejected into hard vacuum. There's a point where he says, I don't believe in psychic things. Gut check me here because we're only like 30 episodes in, so I might have just completely misread the whole situation this far, but Andalites communicate via telepathy exclusively, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? Yeah, one one hundred percent. Yes. Okay, just wanted to check since he doesn't believe in psychic things. <laughs> yeah. Also, there's a whole race of underwater aliens that is mind readers. Yes, the Lyran. Yeah, that's canon. That yeah, that's not even our canon. That's not more canon than canon. That's just regular <laughs> canon. Elfanger probably doesn't know about him because he doesn't read a single goddamn book. That's true. That's true. He just knows, like, the different kinds of Andalite sports balls. Yeah, no, that's a great fucking point. And especially in this book, because they talk a lot about communicating with the humans and how easy it is for the Andalites, because they're telepathic. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just right there. Right. They're goddamn telepaths. <laughs> they even have, like, fucking cerebro-type systems in their ships that let ThoughtSpeak work across vast distances of space. They have telepathic teleprompters. They have telepathic telecoms. There was a point in towards the end of this book after he landed in the desert to retrieve the time matrix, which we we haven't talked about the time matrix yet. Well, well there's let's... nothing to fucking say about the time matrix, Brent. It's a 100% MacGuffin. Maybe it'll come up in the third book. It hasn't done shit for me so far. I, I think it might be a plot point in uh, Legends of Tomorrow, maybe? <laughs> That's a good fucking yeah. show. We should do a podcast about Legends of Tomorrow. I would do that podcast for sure. I enjoy that show a lot. Towards the end of this book, they landed the Jahar in the desert near the Crash Skritna ship to retrieve the Time Matrix, which he just kind of left there. Right. Super irresponsible. <laughs> right. And Elfingor realizes while he's out there, oh, shit, everybody in the ship is a controller. And it took me a minute because I was reading it and he had to, like, shoot three of them. And I was like, who's the third Yurk? The, the one that was in Chapman... Moved into Alarin. Oh, The one that yes. was in Chapman was Esplin. Yes. Warren's voluntarily gave up 
to, in order to get in spaces rather than starving to death. That's right, and then Ulfingor spaced it. So, kind of a war crime, probably. <sighs> if it had been more than one Yurik, maybe. This was just regular murder. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so I thought, oh man, where did the third Yurik come from? And then, like, two pages later, I realized, oh, there is no third Yurik. Chapman's just a dick. He seems so different than adult Chapman from our regular Animorphs timeline. Yeah, I'm really hoping there's some sort of explanation for that in the third book. I really hope so, too. I I don't want to get hurt again via <laughs> characterization of people like I was with David. It's just, it is a huge difference, though, because he... He has already sold out the human race in this book and become a controller, but he's still like a total... He hasn't learned anything. Yeah, he, he, He's still a jerk. He sold out the human race for like no reason. He didn't get shit. He got controllered and that's it. Do you have anything else? No, honestly, we've, uh, we've covered a lot more in this than I thought we would given the amount of notes that I took. Yeah, I did not take a lot of notes either, even though a lot happens in this book. It, it's all just kind of... Space opera -y. Yeah, it's it's very plot heavy. It's very much like a 60s, 70s comic book space thing. Um, it's kind of sixth world or Guardians of the Galaxy type stuff going on. And there's just not a lot. I, I didn't think there was a lot to comment on in terms of the sort of stuff that we normally discuss, which is nitpicky. Yeah, which is plot hole bullshit. Yeah, yeah. We nitpick like like motherfuckers. <laughs> We're adults reading children's literature and finding <laughs> issues with it. Fight me. <laughs> You're making things too real for me, Brent. Yeah. We can't, we can't both go through life crises during this one episode. I, it's, you know, this is not the first episode, during which we've both been going through life crises. We're just normally way better at hiding it. I, I really enjoy doing this with you, Brent. I, I really enjoy doing this with you too, Jenna. Based on the Twitter engagement we're getting... Uh, alone. I don't know how the stuff on Tumblr is because you mostly run that, but based on the Twitter engagement alone, we're bringing joy to a lot of people. Joy and consternation. Yeah, the fact that we've got any amount of fan art at all is so oh. spectacular. Holy shit. Like, I still can't believe that we got fan art of Hecate. Our oh, so fucking good. I can't wait for us to get back to the mainstream Animorph so we can check in with her. I know. I know. That recent fan art that we got from Joe Techsmith is fucking amazing it's such it's so good quality good. it's got the the skeleton and stuff it's so fucking good oh it's unreal it really is yeah you can find that fan art and more at andalitetruth.org yeah it, it is a non-profit uh, dedicated to spreading the truth read the documents people <laughs> all right i think that's enough for this week yeah i think that's more than enough for this week actually i'm curious <laughs> to see how much of this gets cut down when uh when you send me the final proof <laughs> we'll see thanks for tuning in this week everybody uh you can find us at fandalites.com if you've got anything to share hit us up at fandalites at gmail.com at fandalites on twitter fandalites.tumblr.com Thanks to Dust Nodell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. You can find his stuff at dustnodell.bandcamp.com. He's at Dustin of CYT on Twitter, so give him a follow. I'm sure he'd appreciate it. He seemed pretty thrilled that someone liked his remix of Sunset Parallax that he did for our intro and outro enough to ask him to post the whole thing. Yeah, I really liked that. It's a good song. It's bumping. You know, all of his stuff is really good. Next week, we'll be doing book three of the Andalite Chronicles, 
an alien dies. <gasps> That's okay. But literally everybody in this book is aliens to somebody else in this book. So that could be literally anybody. I sort of figured that an alien dies referred to Elfengor becoming a human nothlet named Alan Fangor. Oh, I like that. Yes, I like that theory a lot. It's the symbolic death of his alienness. Yeah, the ego death of the Andalite. All right, thanks again for listening. You guys are amazing. Uh, I've, I've loved interacting with you um, online for the past couple weeks. It's really made me feel great. <laughs> yes, thank you. We love all of your Twitter comments. Please keep it up. We love you. Thank you. Until next week, remember, nostalgia is a drug. <laughs>